0: All right, welcome to Christ Pilled Conversations. This is the show where me and one of my Christ loving friends study through a chapter of the Gospels. And uh, I was explaining to Ed, I need to tell everybody what this show is and what the crazy name means. So uh, I came up with this, I just came up with this briefly. So it's open for improvement. Um, and Christ Pilled is a, is a term that comes from internet slang. Uh, Basically, but a a short definition of it is uh, without getting into a bunch of stuff that uh, is not germane to be Christ pilled is uh, to rely on Christ for all answers relevant for living over and above any political movement, philosophy, uh, set of doctrines or creeds, uh, but to be rooted in life, understanding and all things in Christ and him crucified. So that's the meaning of Christ Pilled, and we are trying to uh, see clearly a first century Christ in a 21st century world. Um, that's the purpose of this show in brief. I hope that makes sense. Um, that's probably the best I'm going to do in terms of explaining it. I have with me today for my first guest. I'm very excited to talk to this guy. Um, he is somebody who's special to me. Uh if for no other reason than because I took over uh, a position that he was in for a long time this past year, and uh, that was uh, preaching here in Vacaville, California at the Church of Christ at 1500 Alamo Drive. Um, so without further ado, Ed Sanderson Sr., how you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, and I appreciate very much the honor of being able to work with you as you start this new uh, project, and I appreciate the fact that you're looking at scripture, looking at Jesus Christ, and I love your love for God and Christ. Uh, As you had mentioned, I had been able to work with a congregation there since 1985 up until uh, September of this past year. And so 35 wonderful years uh, preaching with them and 25 as an elder. Uh, And so it was a great grace. Um, It should be Also noted that uh, I had moved to Vacaville from Fullerton, California, where I had preached for four years. And before that, I taught college at Cal State Northridge for five years in the Religious Studies Department. Uh, History of Religion in America, comparative religion, other kinds of of classes that connected to those things. And so um, I uh, very much appreciate your interest in trying to help us look at Christ and see him in ways that apply. Uh, To our our world today, Um, and uh, I am married and have three grown children and twelve grandchildren, and enjoy very much uh, your work, the work I've been able to see with the different Zoom opportunities or web opportunities, uh, and just appreciate very much the work that you're doing there in Vacaville.
0: Well, thank thank you.
1: Yeah, you've got a you got a whole brood of grandkids I see on Facebook.
0: You've just got uh, just this this family that's everywhere. Um, that's got to be awesome for you now that you're uh, you're at Folsom now, right? Uh, you're in the Folsom, California area, and uh, living it up in semi-retirement.
1: What are you doing these days? Yeah, I, I'm uh, working with a, um, close to my family. I, I'm retired, and so that I teach and preach by uh, by appointment. And so, I have lots of projects of uh, uh, you know that I'm able to do that I couldn't do when I was uh, working uh, fully supported with the congregation there. We do have two sons that live in the area, and all of us are able to worship with the church in Folsom, where David Posey does most of the preaching, and many of the members there we've known for many many years. So uh, it's been a grace to be able to contribute to the classes that we've been able to participate here and uh, the worship. To the extent that we've been able to, with the limitations of COVID, uh, and so it, it's a it's a real grace to to be here, uh, and it's uh, a special transition to uh, be able to have the time to work on special projects, and uh, I'm enjoying that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yes.
0: that, that sounds awesome. What what kind of projects are you working on these days? What are you thinking about? Uh, what do you, well, What have you been studying biblically these days?
1: Uh, well, we have several classes. The Tuesday morning class is on the Gospel of Mark and trying to see how we can imitate what Jesus shows us in Mark. The Wednesday evening class currently is working through the I Am's and the Gospel of John. And I've been working on a project with regard to faith and what the New Testament teaches about little faith, great faith, growing our faith. Um, and uh, been d- we're doing some work uh, on that. Um, and. Uh, Uh, Trying to uh, try to put together kind of uh, an outline of some things that I want to be developing in terms of writing. There are several different uh, folks who've been after me to write some things uh, that are larger monographs. And so I've been trying to uh, figure out how I'm going to do with that. So, yeah, uh, it's been a real a real uh, transition. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, well, I definitely think you should write some books because you're a very smart guy and uh, (laughs) uh, the world would be very, very much better off if you would uh, grace us with some of some of your thoughts. And it sounds like you've got a lot of awesome gospel based studies going on just, uh, you know, privately in your church life or whatever uh, there with with Mark and John. Uh, I was reading I read Mark through in one sitting the other day for the first time in a while. And, uh, man, I, 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 said this on Facebook, but I, I, I've always kind of felt like Mark was like the least substantive of the gospels. Cause it's so sort of, and then this happened and then this happened and it's very detail oriented. Uh, right. but if you just read it through in one go, it's, it's breathtaking just how like it moves yeah. so quickly, but it's so good. Uh, I
1: think what you just said is important for us to remember. And that is most of these books were designed to be read at one sitting and then have been studied by breaking them up. And there's nothing particularly wrong with doing that, except they were designed to get the big sweep of it. And we were blessed to live in a time when we can listen on CD, even if we're not able to focus long enough in terms of our eyes to read all the way through. I actually have a video of a fellow who'd memorized the Gospel of Mark, who did a dramatic presentation of it all in one sitting. Um, And we have one of the Gospel of John that's similar. And uh, it just happens that we're studying those. That's just you know chance. But we're, we're really blessed in terms of the technology we have access to these days, and that we can do that. And when you do, like you were saying in the Gospel of Mark, you catch things at the end that, that really connect to things at the beginning. And if you studied them 12 weeks apart, it's hard to remember that that was there unless the teacher points it out. Yeah. Uh, but when yeah. you hear it all at one time, it's all there. And like you mentioned, Uh, Mark has uh, actually uh, fewer pericopes or sections, but he has longer sections. So he'll spend more time and more detail on subsections than Matthew or Luke uh, will on the same section. Um, But he'll have fewer sections. And so it's a they're all they're all great in their own way. And I think getting into Matthew the way you are this week, it helps us realize that the Holy Spirit has uh, blessed us with preserving for us and inspiring each of these four accounts. And uh, none of them and all of them combined don't say everything that happened in the lifetime of Jesus. And the Gospel of John says in chapter 21 that the whole world couldn't contain the books if everything were written and that's probably fair. But each one is a teaching tool that the Holy Spirit inspired to help us get a picture of the things that actually happened and were taught by Jesus. And so Matthew has his own particular point of view. Um, I don't know if you wanted to um, do, do the setup of the book yeah. uh, yourself. Yeah. And go ahead and and, uh, and talk a little bit about well, the nature well, of Matthew then. Well, I was going to
0: sort of, uh, I was going to set it up a little bit, but mostly I was going to toss it uh, kind of to you. And I. I, okay. I hope I'm not getting a lot of sound coming in through here. I've got my heater <laughs> kicking on here. So hopefully that's not too overwhelming. It's
1: not interfering with what I can hear, but my hearing okay. isn't all that good. So
0: <laughs> Okay. Well, we'll see how the audio comes out when we're finished with this thing. <laughs> I think it'll be fine. The
1: Gospel of Matthew is interesting. Like all the Gospels, it's anonymous. It, none of the books actually say right. the, the name of the author, um, but it's been attributed to Matthew since the second century, and there's no reason not to attribute it to Matthew. It certainly uh, is something that would fit uh, as, as he is writing Uh, We can learn from the content of each of the Gospels uh, what the emphasis of it is and kind of infer from that what we imagine the audience might have been. And for uh, centuries, people have suggested that Matthew was writing to an audience probably in Syria or in Palestine of people who were in the middle of uh, a transitional period where uh, those people who had been uh, considering themselves Jewish were divided between people who were accepting Jesus and people who were not. Mm, and so sure. that those folks then who were not accepting Jesus had particular questions that they wanted answered. And you had Christians who were talking with these people in their daily lives who needed to have answers to those questions that their neighbors had. And that's not too terribly different from us today. Yeah. We're not living uh, in Syria. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I certainly have Jewish friends who want to know if you know, if Jesus was Jewish, then how did he relate to what God had revealed in Tanakh, in, in the right. Jewish yeah, Bible? Right. Uh, and so it's great that we have so much in the Gospel of Matthew that connects yeah. to those yeah. issues. Yeah, well, I was going to say that
0: I had—I have always heard that the Gospel of Matthew is a gospel written for a, a Jewish audience to confirm uh, what Jesus did in accordance with the law and the prophets. Um, but that, you know, that's an explanation that I think sometimes for modern people uh, seems a little bit ancient, right? I mean, a lot of people right. you, you talk to about Jesus might say, well, I don't really know anything about the Old Testament. So what does it mean to me? And it, uh, and I, of course, I think there are things in the Gospel of Matthew that those people can connect to as well. Which is the 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 really um, miraculous uh, aspect of Holy Spirit inspiration is that uh, it it can be it can introduce or open Jesus up to people who uh, the in the original context the author wasn't even uh, probably considering, um, but uh, that that's part of.
1: Uh, but, you know, that's just, not that's not something that's just true for the New Testament. I mean, right. Yeah. We read uh, Charles Dickens and he was writing to a particular social situation. And yet the things that he writes uh, often are very much alive for us. And if you read Louisa May Alcott or someone uh, writing yeah. to a particular yeah. situation, There, you name it. You know, I remember The Crucible was written um, by Arthur Miller to deal with the McCarthyism. And yet it has been refreshed again and again it that's the nature of a written piece um and the grace of the holy spirit inspired pieces is that he knows human nature better than even you know secular authors do and uh and so it always fits
0: yeah i think so i i i think that um it it i don't know I, i i saw a Uh, a video with a uh, someone giving a kind of testimonial. It was a it was a older it was a Jewish woman talking about how um, it had been sort of uh, forbidden from her. That is the Gospel of Matthew. And she found a copy of it in the original language and and had this experience where she connected with Jesus and particularly Jesus's Jewishness. So that's sort of the opposite side of this is if that is your your cultural background and your uh, sort of uh, worldview, then this is, this is the doorway in this book was written as a doorway into belief in Jesus for you. Um, But it's just interesting how it was written, I think with a kind of sort of narrow audience in mind. And, uh, and of course it it functions for such a broad audience. It's been translated all over the world. Um, So again, that's true of the entire scripture, but.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's it, when you the way you put that it's interesting because we think of uh, of of it being written by a person with a narrow view, um, and Matthew or the author may have had a particular community in mind when he wrote it, just like Paul did when he wrote letters to congregations. But the Holy Spirit's mind had everybody in mind, right? And, yeah. Uh, and so yeah, it it's, uh, it and you know it proves itself in each generation. Yeah.
0: Well, without uh too much more preamble let's uh let's just dive into the chapter then. very good um, so what i'm going to do is uh i'm going to take this in chunks and I, I will start out reading i was going to make the joke i brought you on this this show ed to uh to have you read a genealogy <laughs> okay uh, no um i will <laughs> probably mispronounce <laughs> yeah. some names here but i will take verses um 1 through 6 okay and then I'll have you read verses seven through 11. Okay. And then I will read verses 12 through 16 or 12 through 17. And then uh, we'll come back and sort of talk about the genealogy. We'll talk about, we'll just sort of talk about the genealogy in general, sort of verse by verse a little bit, hitting a few things that I found to be significant. And then you can add whatever you'd like. And then we'll talk about, about um, the uh, the end of chapter one, which uh, speaks to the name Emmanuel and the conception of Christ. So uh, I'll start with verses one through six. Um, Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse one. Oh, sorry, let me get right into the microphone here. Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse one. Amenadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon And Nashon the father of Salmon And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth And Obed the father of Jesse And Jesse the father of David the king And David the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah
1: um, 7 through yeah. 11 Okay Okay uh, Solomon, and again, I'm using the common English pronunciations, because as you noticed, uh, folks who are Jewish would would pronounce, you know, like Dawid instead of David and so forth. But right. Solomon right. was the father of the ancestor of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abiyah. Abiyah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Yehoshaphat was the father of Yoram. Yoram was the father of Uzziah. Ziah was the father of Yotham. Yotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Zechariah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amun. Amun was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Yehudiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon.
0: And after the deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of uh, Shealt- uh, she- Shealtiel I should just have you pronounce all of these. I'm going to butcher them all. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh it's Sheotil, the father of Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud and Abiud the father of Ilikaiam, Ilikaiam the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achiam, Achiam the father of I- Iliud, Eliud the father of Elazar, and Elazar the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay. So that was a lot of names and stuff. I understand that's overwhelming, but I thought it was better to get it read through once all the way. So we have that out of the way and then come back and take it sort of bit by bit. Um, So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. So what is the significance of uh, uh, the, the writer of Matthew framing this as the son of David, son of Abraham? What are, what are the differences between those two things and how are those two things linked?
1: Uh, son of is, uh, our English translation, um, descended of is probably the more right. accurate way to think of it or one in the character of is another way that it's sometimes used. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a big fan of watching, um, finding your roots, uh, which is a genealogy. So on PBS and yeah. <clears throat> it's been imitated on the other networks and on other cable shows. And uh, what's fa- fascinating about that is <clears throat> that you, you try to go back and find connections between the people who are alive now, especially the person who they're doing the research on. Uh, and uh, you don't really, you know, care necessarily about every single ancestor they had. Right. What you try to do is find the interesting ones. When they first started doing Finding their Roots, they actually would go through every one for one particular guide. It would take forever. And they figured out that if they wanted to keep an audience, what they needed to do is focus on those significant uh, kinds of people. And that's basically what you have here. What you have is this uh, this wonderful blessing of connecting the people who are reading this. uh, First of all, the audience of Matthew, but even to a certain extent to us today connecting those who are reading it with certain key points in the questions that are in our hearts and minds. Um, one of those questions for Jewish people in that time and today is David, because David was the one that God promised uh, a son, a descendant, uh, who would always sit on the throne. And uh, in fact, there would be one then who would rule forever, perpetually, continually. Yeah, yeah. And So that the fact that Jesus is a descendant of and of the character of David, uh, who loved God and who God said had a heart like himself. uh, That's a pretty significant thing for those of us who are looking for a Messiah, who are looking for someone who really fits with God and with what God has been doing throughout the history of creation. And so if he's going to be the Messiah in verse one, he's going to be, I have to be the son of David. But the other thing is it connects back to Abraham or Abraham. And Abraham yeah. was, uh, of course, pre-Jewish. He was yeah. from the Ur of the Chaldees. Um, but God promised to him in Genesis chapter 12 that if he followed God, that God would do a number of things for him. He would make him a great nation. He would have lots of descendants. He would be Uh, given a land. And of course, he was permitted to, uh, through his descendants, have control over the land of Canaan uh, for the period of time that God promised. Um, And uh, he would bless those who blessed him and curse those who curse him. But the big one is that he would bless all nations through Abraham's descendant, Abraham's seed. And so here you have Jesus, the Messiah, as the descendant of Abraham. And therefore, for those of us who care about those prophecies, he fits that because people have become uh, like Jews, the new Israel, ever since Jesus from every nation under heaven. And today you can find Christians who are trying their best to fulfill, to keep the fulfilled law of Moses, the fulfilled law of God to demonstrate the character of faith that Abraham had. You can find yeah. them in every yeah. single country in the world. Uh, and that's just staggering uh, to have that kind of blessing going on. And in those places where we behave the way Christians are to be behaved, we're able to be a blessing where we live. Yeah, And so yeah. that's, a, that's a, um, a very important kind of connection. I don't know if that catches all you're after, but that's what oh, no, we're on here.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great answer. I, I knew you'd have a, a lot of stuff on that, so I just thought I'd throw throw that out there to start. It it it, it jumped out to me that um, the the genealogist traces the the generations specifically uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, and then uh, to Judah and Judah's brothers. Um, and so going through sort of the uh, the direct genealogy laid out in Genesis. And of course, as you were kind of alluding to, he's going to skip around uh, in, in some yes. other places. But this is right. very much establishing sort of like Jesus is of this line that was told about in the earliest stories in the law of Moses um, or some of the earliest stories in the law of Moses. And then in, in verse three, it jumped out to me. Um, there's sort of a. Uh, the insertion of certain women into Jesus's genealogy, where that would not, my understanding anyway, is that that would not typically be something that you would do in a, in a Jewish genealogy is insert the names of mothers in certain places. Um, But he does that particularly uh, starting in verse three with Tamar, uh, which uh, Tamar is a weird sort of, uh, I would say kind of tangential story in Genesis that, but it, it relates back to um, the children of Judah so um, uh, or the children of Abraham, rather. So I, I think this is going to start a pattern that we're going to see where we're going to see uh, Rahab and Ruth brought out and the wife of Uriah, which we know of as, as Bathsheba. So um, I, I just think it's, uh, it's interesting, and I wonder what your thoughts are on the fact that uh, certain women get such a special place in Jesus's
1: genealogy. Well, when you say it's not Jewish, Genesis five and Genesis 10, and most of the genealogies and Chronicles and other places in Leviticus, there's several genealogies in the Old Testament. And you're correct that they uh, are basically the generations of the males who pro- were the progenitors of that particular line. Um, but in Judaism today and for many centuries, the uh, the Jewish, uh, you say credentials, if you will, of, of a person are determined by the mother. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting that if you talk to modern Jews today, uh, they, they will recognize that it's people who are born to a Jewish mother. You can be sure then that right. they have a Jewish lineage. Um, and of course, when you have intermarriage, it's not sure. You know, it, the mother is the one who actually is the one <laughs> who would know, as we say, yeah. um, without DNA tests. And so uh, here you have then these women included, uh, but they're not. They're not every woman, and that's something that you noticed. And, and that for those of us who are Christian, living in Syria or Palestine or in you know Vacaville or in Folsom, it's encouraging to notice. That the people that God used to bring about this Messiah were not all part of some inside game, some single lineage, you know, some DNA strain that uh, that maybe Jesus was just so good because he was so Jewish. And the Holy Spirit says, no, that's just not true. Right. Uh, and, And he gives us some interesting people, as you mentioned. Most people have heard of Rahab. And so, you know, here's this woman who was living in Jericho and um, was a person who was an innkeeper. And uh, the word there is usually used for a prostitute, a brothel keeper. Mm -hmm. And she becomes faithful and God promises to take care of her her and her household. And he takes care of her and her household. They're not killed when Jericho is destroyed. But that's not all. She becomes one of the uh, ancestral uh, people connected to King David. And later on, Jesus himself. And then uh, you have the mention then of Tamar. And Tamar was uh, a very interesting story there where Judah's children didn't behave the way they needed to. And so God kept killing them. And as that happened, finally, uh, Tamar took it upon herself to trick Judah. uh, And uh, Judah then became the father of his own grandchildren uh, through his daughter-in-law. And uh, there's, there's, there's no way to really clean that up. I mean, lipstick on a pig really doesn't do much. That was not right. the way God drew up the way humans are supposed to be behaving as righteous people. Not the way his sons were not behaving the way they were should. He wasn't behaving the way he should. And, uh, and, and Tamar then forced the issue. But God used Tamar. She became right. the, an ancestor to da- King David and then to Jesus. And again, like Rahab, she was not part of that Jewish lineage. And so if I'm a Christian, again, in Folsom or in Syria or Vacaville or whatever, and I realize God can use all kinds of people, then he can use me. Right. He can use somebody like me. I've I've not lived a perfect life, and and that's an understatement. And yet he's able to use me. He can use me if I don't have the pedigree. Uh, of a particular DNA strain, or my subculture is not white Southern or something. Doesn't make any difference to God. Uh, yeah. God uses all kinds of people. And then, as you mentioned, the great story of Ruth. Uh, Ruth grew, was, uh, was a Moabitess, okay, i.e. not Jewish. <laughs> so, right. And uh, she becomes an ancestor of David and of Jesus. Uh, but she does it by choice. She wants to follow God. And so she follows her mother-in-law into this land. And she comes in at a really bad time culturally where the period of the judges, you just read the book of Judges and men, they were really struggling with basic faith issues. They really had some problems. And yet in this little town where she goes in Bethlehem, everybody behaves and Boaz behaves and everybody is kind. Boaz is generous and he's kind. And finally, he, he marries her and uh, gives her his inheritance, uh, and she becomes then a mother in Israel. And then the big one, Bathsheba. And right. even people who've never read the Bible know about David and Bathsheba. Yeah. Uh, and so here's this person who was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He was a Hittite. He was not Jewish. It's possible that she was Jewish and married this Hittite. It's possible that she was a Hittite. We have no real Uh, evidence of that. The usual suspicion is that he was, she was Jewish and married the Hittite, but it's not kosher to commit adultery with one of your subordinates and kill that subordinate just so that nobody will find out. That is not cool. And yet Jesus comes as a descendant of Bathsheba. uh, And so we have the four women who are used here, uh, show not only that Jesus is very Jewish, uh, but that God is able to make non-Jews into Jews. Yeah, and He didn't start with Christianity; that this right. has been going on all the way back. And so, anyway, that's what I make of that.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. I mean, just just to recap, I think it's important, like just to 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 state this again. Because it's, I think, a lot of times people, especially, it seems like now, um, I see a lot of people um, equating uh, Christianity and religious belief writ large with uh, patriarchy. But uh, if you look at the line of Jesus, and if you look at the special place that is made for women in Jesus's life and in his his lineage, um, uh, Jesus had the utmost care. And and adoration for uh, uh, godly women, and and it's not just as though um, you know if you're a woman and you're a believer, it's not it's not as though uh, it was only men that were in the line of of Jesus. And if you are uh, any kind of person, and you're not from the right background, quote unquote, or you haven't had the right kind of life uh, up to this point these are all things that are irrelevant to Jesus. Um, yes. uh, and so this is even in sort of the part, this part of the gospel that I feel like can feel like drudgery sometimes to study. Right. Um, that is a really comforting note that is there to find if you look for it. Um, there's also,
1: there's also Mary, I neglected yeah. to mention probably the most important in one many respects right. is Mary yeah. because Mary's the one whose DNA Jesus actually carried. And so that the the final, you know, I love the way Matthew puts this. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who's called Messiah. Luke says a similar thing It was supposed was the father of. And so we know who the father was, because in the next part of the chapter, he's going to tell us that the father really was the Holy Spirit. And so you have a spiritual fatherhood that connects the dots and jesus as as the mother then um is the one who gives credibility uh, to jesus as part of this lineage yeah
0: yeah, yeah I, I think that's so cool and um you know i think that especially in in our tradition which is sort of uh, based in like you know restoration um we've really um neglected mary in some ways for fear of you know sounding vaguely papal or catholic Uh, but but really there is a lot of juice to be squeezed there (laughs) to use a a sort of crude metaphor in terms of um mary's importance in bringing uh god's will into the world bringing about emmanuel god with us uh uh, in in carrying uh christ and in being chosen to do so so I let mean me just, I don't think me, it, it, we should we should obviously not uh, elevate her to uh, to divinity on the level of Christ, but she certainly is a major player in this divine plan that we're seeing played out.
1: Uh, I think it's important to notice, if, you know, well for one thing, I, uh, other people and myself, I, I preach lots of sermons on Mary, and I think a lot of other people have too. It's important to continue to yeah. Remember the, the extraordinary woman she is, because in the book of Matthew, in parts that we're not going to talk about today, the Holy Spirit tells us she was righteous and that Joseph who buried her was righteous.
0: Yeah. And
1: righteous wasn't just a, an adjective they threw around like we do awesome. Righteous had a character. It was a Zedek. It was a righteous person. This is a yeah. person who met the blameless requirements that the people of that time uh, derived from the, the law of Moses. And so that she she was a strikingly remarkable person. And when you look at her life in John, the second chapter with the business at the wedding feast and, of course, at the cross, as she's there watching her own son uh, die on the cross. And he says, you know, take care of your mom. Take care of John. That's a she's an extraordinary person. And uh, it's a it's a mistake to ignore what the Holy spirit celebrates just because some sect, some group yeah. of people yeah. has not, or right. makes too much right. of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely am with you there. We should talk about Mary more and don't feel like it's weird. Um, so uh, I wanted to hit in verses six and, uh, six and seven, this sort of kingly lineage going from, from Jesse. Uh, and then you have, uh, abijah and and aspa or these are just my english translations i'm not i'm not a hebrew (laughs) scholar i'm not even gonna attempt the the only
1: people people who really know how they were supposed to be pronounced in their era are already in heaven laughing at us so
0: yes (laughs) that that in and of itself is a comforting thought right there right uh yeah yeah, our uh, our failures at pronouncing their names here don't matter. No, but I I think that it was. Um, it, it seems to be important to the genealogists to uh, establish yeah. this direct line through David through Solomon, um, in accordance with this idea that the Messiah would be uh, the root of Jesse, the seed of Jesse from that divine lineage, and that's obviously an idea we've talked about a little bit already. But I think when we were talking with people who don't know anything about about Christ, it's important um, that we set up this idea of uh, the Messiah was to be a king and they expected a king Uh, and Jesus was a king. Um, He was a king that did not uh, seize earthly political power, but he was a king who had the right to reign um, and he reigns still in heaven. So this is an important idea to sort of um, understanding what, what, what uh, what they were talking about When they were talking about the Messiah um, But I and didn't know if you had any since, other thoughts there
1: Yeah especially since the Holy Spirit Promised in 1 Samuel 7 That one of David's descendants would sit on the throne As long as yeah. he was faithful um, I, th- I think it's also Instructive uh, When you get into the weeds here uh, These kings there are seven Judean kings who were good kings According to the Holy Spirit's record in the Old Testament But there were also eight Kings that the Holy Spirit's uh, record describe as evil kings. Yeah. And so yeah. God, again, uh, he doesn't need to have a perfect lineage of perfect people. Okay. Yeah. So you have some really good kings, uh, David, Asa, uh, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Yotham, Hezekiah, um, yeah. and then Josiah. Those are famous, good kings. And so you yeah. could say he's... He's clearly got some ancestors who are amazing, but then you've got Solomon, who after he did all these wonderful things ended up being an idolater. And it's because of his idolatry that the kingdom split in two. You got Abiyah, who is described as evil, Yehoram or Yormam, who's described as evil, Ahaz, who's described as evil. Uh, You've got Manasseh, who is described as the worst king that they ever had in terms of his relationship with God. You have Ammon, who's described as evil. And uh, you have Yeconiah or Yehoiachin or Kadiah, however you want to uh, call him, uh, who's described as evil. So Jesus, God is able to use all kinds of people within that lineage. And so it's true that he is uh, he's got that mark of credibility that he's within the lineage of the kings but it's also true that God doesn't need perfect Kings to bring about a perfect Messiah. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. so that's very humbling too. It's so, it's, it's so funny that you should bring that up because I think this speaks
0: to like a way that we often are tempted to view history in terms of like, we, we think when we're in, you know, from our perspective in our lives, cause we're pretty limited. We think that like, well there was a time in the past when things used to be great and now things aren't so great and maybe in the future things will be great again. And that's probably what the dips and valleys of like uh, Israel's kingship seemed like to people who were living in it at the time, but from the God's God's eye view, from God's POV, this is all moving toward one end which is which is Christ. And it's the same thing for us today. What we see of what we see as um you know, things used to be great then now they're not so great. Now you hear a lot of moaning like that in the culture and, you know, people think wishing things would be better. Um, but really we're just talking about the, the very limited perspective of our lives. Um, God knows where this is going and it like, then it's all headed toward Christ. Everything can collapse into trust Jesus. It's going to be fine. And that's right. part of what I mean by, um, by Christ pilled is that, um, everything that you see that, that bothers you can, can collapse into the, the phrase trust Jesus more. Um, So uh, even, even the evil Kings of, of the, uh, the divided kingdom uh, were leading to the righteous King who reigns forever. Christ. Uh, That's, that's a really big deal for me too. Yep. Yep. So uh, we go from, Abraham to David. And then we go from David to captivity. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the way this is structured You yeah. get 14 generations. And, and these are not 14 generations straight through there. There's skipping around that, that, that happens, but it's 14 uh, from Abram to David, 14 from David to captivity, uh, 14 from captivity to Christ. And I like the symmetry of that. I think that Jews in the first century also like the, the numerical symmetry of that. Um, but I thought you could probably uh, talk more about some of the
1: specifics there. And what, what's, what's the significance of 14? <laughs> well, the significance of it for, primarily in my mind is that the Holy Spirit decided that he wanted to, um, to have Matthew divide it that way there are several different theories on why the 14 and it is clear that he has to, uh, he has 14, 13, 15, right? I mean, 15, 13, 15, 14, he has, uh, uh, he has 14, 14, 14 if you count it right. But in terms wow. of the David, wow. Abraham to David to, to today, uh, he kind of has to, uh, to, to, to package them a certain way. And so it's clear that, that, his readers, the Holy Spirit was interested in talking to those readers. So some of them thought it was important. So that's point one. Um, Now, why is that important to us? Well, for one thing, uh, one theory that makes some sense to me is that uh, seven is usually thought of as a complete period of time. And if you have three sets of 14, you have six sets of seven. And so that makes us now in the last seven. We're now in the, the final age of history. We're now Uh, At the culmination of all things, and and for people who in his lifetime who thought like that, that would be important. We've been able to dig up lots of uh, of books written by Jews, especially, but other people uh, through the centuries. Some of them from the period of time leading up to Christ that were uh, we know were available. uh, The apocryphal books and others. Uh, We've also been able to uh, read the uh, rabbis who. Thoughts are included in the Talmud that uh, the Jews Jewish people have recognized as being the summary of their oral Torah uh, mm. through through the years uh, since you know the sixth century and before that the second century in terms of the rabbis uh, saying these things that were later written down and we know from those folks that uh, there were different ways that people used language uh, to count numbers and they use numbers converted back into language. And you, the big word for that's usually gamatria. And, uh, you can read lots and lots of books about that sort of thing. And, um, so one theory is that if you look at this in a particular way, it actually spells out the name of David and other, there are other approaches to it. Um, and the, you know, uh, those are things that are, um, not terribly interesting to me. I, I read them and, uh, try to become interested in them. But um, I think that that the big news is that there was an orderly progression yeah. that God yeah. was using that brought us from Abraham to David and from David to Jesus. And yeah. you know, that orderly procession is, as you were putting it it, it, it wasn't something that depended on any particular person or generation's faithfulness. Because he brought it about when he was ready. Galatians four four says uh, that in at the right time uh, Jesus was born of a woman born under the law. In due time, at the appropriate time, um, that's a pretty powerful thought, and that's what I kind of make out of the. But yeah. I'm open to yeah. learning, so that if you have some better theory, I'm open for
0: it. <laughs> no, I sure don't. I I the, uh, but I was just hoping that well, uh, all I really wanted to get at was that exactly what you hit—that we that we see an orderly progression from uh, patriarchal times uh, to uh, the, the pinnacle that is the United Kingdom of, of David from sort of earthly physical terms. Uh, and then we, we see another progression to the complete sub- subjection in, in the, in the Jewish mind that would have been uh, being carried off to Babylonian captivity. And then back again to, uh, to the, the perfect reign in, uh, in in the highest spiritual sense uh, of Christ and of the kingship of David uh, in Christ. Um, so yeah, I think you hit all that. You hit all that well. The last thing I wanted to hit was just that 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 like I it struck me as I was reading through that I don't often think about reading through the genealogy part that I don't always think about the um, the experience of the captivity shaping the generation that Jesus was born into because um, this uh, the the Babylonian captivity uh and the you know the subsequent sort of uh, uh Persian captivity um had uh, you know it would have been s- several centuries in the past at this point when when Christ is born but it had such an effect it seems like on shaping the way that um the the Jewish community that Jesus lived in saw themselves um and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how that affects the expectation of the Messiah that they had.
1: Well, because we live in a, a country that's never uh, been invaded and conquered by outside nations. It's uh, it's kind of hard for us to actually get our arms around this whole idea of having some other country come in and take away all of your leading citizens, not just the King, but they took away a whole bunch of all their yeah. leading yeah. citizens. And um And then by God's grace, under the Persians, these Persians were instrumental in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, It's astonishing how much Gentiles were involved in the building of this Jewish temple whenever they came back. We know that when they went away, the Psalm says they had to hang up their harps. And we know from the traditions of history that they sang without any musical instruments when they didn't have a temple Um, and, uh, The synagogue, of course, sang without instruments, so that much of that developed during the exile. The very institution of the synagogue seems to have taken place uh, in the period of the exile and the restoration uh, prior to the restoration period. Um, And so they had a whole lot of things going on that Jesus uh, was a part of when he lived and uh, that he participated in and he didn't reject or throw away in the Gospel of John, it even says that he was at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, which is Hanukkah. And yeah. so yeah. there are a whole lot of these things um, that that played into that. But, but the big one is that uh, when they go off, Jeremiah says that uh, Jeconiah, the last king, is not going to have any of his descendants on the throne anymore. And so 1 Samuel 7 says there's going to be a descendant of David. Jeremiah says it's not going to be Jeconiah. When when is this going to happen? What's it going to happen? And so they're looking around under every rock trying to find someone who could fit this particular description that would fulfill the prophecy of 1 1 Samuel 7, um, but would also fit the prophecies in Jeremiah. And Jesus is the one who does that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and I think that the another element of this has to do with the fact that during that time they had to learn how to live under the kingdom of God, under the rule of God, under his rules and regulations without having a physical king. Yeah. Now they have done that in Joshua and in Judges. But after David, um, they almost started thinking that you had to have a theocratic government, that the government and the law had to be together. And it's ironic because David violated the law, Solomon violated the law, even the good kings had issues. There never was a king until Jesus who actually was uh, a perfect king, right? a yeah. perfect keeper of the law. But the presumption could uh, you know acquired, well, let me put it differently, it, it, it was something that people kind of thought was the case in Jesus's time. Well, you know, we really need to have the Romans gone. We need to have a Jewish king so we can keep the law. Right. Well, right. The, the exile actually taught them that wasn't true. Right. Because they were able to keep the law and the book of Exodus. You had an image given to him of a, of a, of a spiritual temple in existence at that time. It's not prophesied to be a future temple. It was going on right then when they had no physical temple. God right. doesn't right. need a physical government. He needs to have people who put ourselves under his government. yeah. And so yeah. The, the separation of church and state happened under the exile in a very big way. As I said, it's already been going on before that, during the United and Divided Kingdoms, when the prophets would speak for God and the king would either do it or not. And right. so you had right. already a separation between church and state uh, before the exile. But it was clear with the exile that you had. Right. And right. even in Jesus's time, the Romans only gave the rule to the ethnic Jews that they were given the special privileges uh, in Palestine, but only up to a point. And so the separation of church and state became very clear uh, during the exile. And that led into then uh, Matthew's uh, gospel, where you have people who are apparently being persecuted apparently by governments and yet they were the true people of God. And I think that's a powerful thought.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so too. And the idea, you know, in captivity that, that they had, a they, they had a, a physical King. They had someone who was ruling over them, but it was not someone of their choosing. And it wasn't right. someone that they felt like was, um, you know, a representative of, of, of God's will on earth or anything like that. So right. it was, uh, it was a learning experience. I like that idea collectively for them uh, that the, the Kings of this world are, are corrupt and that uh, that God in his kingship is, uh, is beyond the physical. Um, right. I really, I really like that, that take on the captivity. I think that's, um, that's an important thing. Okay. So I think without further ado, we can jump into kind of the first little narrative section that we get of Matthew chapter one. Um, so I'll just read that all the way through and I, I'm reading from the ESV if I hadn't mentioned that before. Okay.
1: Are you still there? I'm not hearing you.
0: Okay, we should be back with sound. Can you hear me?
1: Okay, go ahead. Yes, I can. Thank you very much.
0: Maybe we can, uh, I'll see if we can cut that out in post. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah, I think my my mic connection just went out. Um, Very good. So reading from the ESV from uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill that which the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until he had, she had given birth to a son, He uh, and he called his name Jesus. Okay. So, um, I wanted to go back to, uh, to verse 18 and talk a little bit with you about the ancient, uh, the process of betrothal, what that was like and comparing and contrasting it as we, people often do with engagement today. Um, do you think that's, uh, misleading when people sort of compare it to engagement? Cause, uh, I, yeah,
1: oh, yeah. Um, when you go back and you look at the history, um, you can find the way that Jews behaved during the first century in lots of different books. Josephus, of course, wrote in the 70s, was a Roman historian, a Jewish Roman historian. You have uh, Philo of Alexandria, who is a, a Jewish a writer, philosopher. Uh, you have other people who are writing, like I was mentioning, in the Talmud. You have reference to different rabbis from this period and, uh, and so forth. What you begin to realize is that what's talked about here is a betrothal. Ah uh, was a very serious uh, matter at that time. and uh, so that when you betrothed someone, you were uh, as though you were married uh, in terms of your behavior and uh, and you had uh, certain legal contractual obligations that had to be met uh, and during that period of time. Uh, today, uh, I was uh, I, it, it's it's sad and and yet amusing in a certain way that very often people will have a child and two years later decide they're going to get engaged um, and then maybe get married at some point. Right. And I understand there's some level of
0: commitment that's already taken place here at at some point. (laughs) Uh,
1: But back then, back then there was a a very different uh, community order that was expected. And uh, these Jewish communities, not only in Palestine, but even in Greece and in Asia Minor, Um, the Romans gave them permission to uh, exercise their own uh, religious, we would call it, or social uh, rules. And those rules in terms of betrothal meant that when you were betrothed, that you were the same as married. And so, you know, when you have Joseph being a justice, the ESV word for it, again, it uh, righteous connects with the Jewish part of it, and in the the Jewish New Testament, uh, Messianic Jews have written a Jewish New Testament to try to use Jewish words for that. They just write in Zedek, uh, the, the right. righteous right. or holy person. Uh, Joseph was not just fair in a general sense; he was a he was a holy man. He was a righteous man. He was somebody for whom this was important. Uh, and so, the fact that this woman who is supposed to behave like his wife Is now pregnant and he knows that he's been righteous. And now he's put him in a real awkward spot because the law of Moses said that a person who commits adultery, which is a female having sexual relations with someone who's not her husband, is to be killed, is to be executed. And executed after they have been brought publicly before the community and shamed. Right. And we know again from The Jewish historians of the time and the rabbis that at the time of Jesus, uh, a certain, uh, we would say, tolerance had developed that rather than kill this person, uh, one could choose to divorce that person, to set them apart. You would go to the rabbi, he would write a writ of divorce, and then that would permit that woman uh, to be marriageable once again. And so she could go and, and try to find a person who would marry her but have on the piece of paper that she had been in this relationship before and right. so he right. would have uh you, you might say it was a way of having a uh, full disclosure before they would get involved in that process right and so he's he's leaning that way when god intervenes through this angel in a dream, but I, I've gone beyond where you were asked. No, 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 you're, you're good. So, so if, if he had divorced her
0: in this way though, um, because he says he doesn't want to put her to shame, uh, does that mean he's trying to figure out a way to divorce her without this sort of stain of being an adulteress following her as the reason? Um, I mean, obviously, uh, he doesn't want her to be, you know, shamed in front of the community and executed. And it doesn't seem like that was even, a thing that would happen at this time, but that was what the law uh, prescribed in terms of the law of Moses. Right. So um, it, it's just, it, it's interesting like uh, his righteousness and, and also his righteousness leading him toward um, grace beyond the law uh, is just interesting from a Christian point of view.
1: Yeah. And, and the fact that God intervened, Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, you know, There are a lot of these novels that get written now About you know what if somebody else had won The war right what if the south had won The war or the nazis yeah. had won the yeah. war And, and so you're, you raise an interesting Question because god had already committed to Having this child through mary Yeah she was already carrying the child Yeah right yeah. Now we've already seen though throughout the Divided kingdom that he He's a pretty flexible god he can make He can bring about his will Lots of ways right and uh, as uh, as Esther was told by Mordecai, you know, God's going to deliver His people. But if you want to be a part of this picture, then you need to be involved here. That right. maybe for this reason you've been called to the kingdom, and it may be for this reason that Joseph was called to the kingdom. And and he was a stand-up guy. And when he heard God say, "No, no, listen, this is from me," he believed it. Now, just me talking? That is a huge statement about his commitment to God and his willingness to let God play the cards. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, it it is. And I don't think, I think people miss when we look at this today, people will miss oftentimes like both the position that Mary was in and the position that Joseph is in. So like Mary is, is telling this story about, about being pregnant uh, by the Holy spirit. Um, and it's a story that's not confirmable and sounds like crazy talk to anyone that she tells it to probably including Joseph. Um, and then Joseph is in this position where he ends up not putting her away and being betrothed to her and just, uh, going through with the marriage and not caring what anybody says you, you would presume because he's got this confirmation from God. That's miraculous. Um, but it's, it's, Uh, they're both called upon to make huge social sacrifices in this situation for the purpose of bringing about this child um, that would be God with us. Um, But I I think people sort of glance over this or or gloss over it and be like, uh, because they've heard it so many times, Um, but they're both sticking their necks out for God, so to speak here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Joseph raises him. And so that according to the other gospels, he was an apprentice carpenter under Joseph, right. And then later on, was a was a carpenter on his own. Uh, and Joseph disappears. The presumption is that he died. Uh, we we actually don't have any information about whatever happened to Joseph. So he didn't just commit for a year, you know, while right. the baby's being born. Uh, he stuck around to raise the kid. Yeah. And in Luke two, Luke chapter two, whenever they go down to Jerusalem, his whole family, including Joseph, apparently involved in that. Yeah. and in the gospel of Matthew Joseph's directly involved with God in preserving Jesus from Herod and preserving bringing Jesus back and moving him up to Galilee and uh, so that it's a very interesting um, commitment as you say
0: yeah um so uh, uh, okay so he, it, the angel comes to him in a dream in verse 20 and, and tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife this is maybe a, a sort of tangent but I just am curious and it's maybe it's I'm sure it's not something we're going to put to bed altogether today. Um, but I'm just curious for you in, in your perspective. Um, what what do you think first century Jews saw dreams as? Um, what is the significance of dreams to this community that Jesus is born into? And what would it have meant to Joseph that an angel appeared to him in a, in a dream?
1: Well, uh, we again we're we're uh, we're forced to go back and look at what uh, what historians said and what other literature of the time said, and with literature of any era, we have to remember that some of it is intentionally fictitious, and so you kind of have to look for other ways of trying to figure out whether they actually thought that or whether that was just uh, just a nice story. Um, But it it appears from all the uh, all the literature of the time and and from history that uh, that they thought a great deal of dreams and that was not unusual. The Greeks did, the Romans did, the Egyptians did. Uh, there was a sense that during uh, sleep time you had moved into uh, what we would call a liminal area, a place where you cross the line, and and the lines are are still vague between uh, between conscious world and subconscious world or unconscious world and. So the idea of God talking to people was something in dreams, was something that was uh, present in most cultures. In Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18, as well as in 17, but in 18, he makes the point that when they come into the land, they're not supposed to be like the Canaanites uh, who had all of this sorcery and necromancy and all kinds of sort different kinds of tricks that they use to try to figure out the future. And in that context, uh, makes the point that that these prophets would speak what God put in their mouth uh, and that the dreams that would be involved in communicating would be from God and would be very clear. And and in the uh, usually apocalyptic is the word we use in the Old Testament in different books, not only in Genesis, but in Ezekiel Daniel, especially, you'll have a person seeing something and until the angel explains what it means, it's just a picture. But in those places where the Holy Spirit wants to to know exactly what that's prophesying, the angel, the messenger of God, word angel just means messenger. The messenger in the dream would tell them, this is what that means. And here you have not just a vague picture, but this messenger telling Joseph, look, this is what's going to happen. Now, his response to us tells us what his feeling about dreams are, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that's not inconsistent with what other people would have thought. Now, yeah, did people yeah. have enough sense to know that sometimes people saw nonsense in dreams? Yes, they did. And therefore, yeah. there's a test of Deuteronomy 18 that it has to come true, or it's not yeah. really. Yeah. So uh, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I, I
0: think you're right to point out that it, well, if you look at verse 25, verse 24 and 25, that as soon as he wakes up, he does what the angel commands. Uh, and he names the kid what G, what the angel tells him to name him um that that should tell you that that Joseph put quite a bit of stock in this particular dream anyway um, yes uh, and uh so yeah, I mean, I just was I've always been kind of curious as to the culture in ancient contexts um right. around around dreams it's it's kind of fascinating for me. And just because modern people are also so concerned with dreams and the whole Freudian thing. And um, it just seems like a thing that people never really have gotten over is obsessing over dreams. And it's, it's significant in the Bible in places. Um,
1: Well, and and, uh, we have a lot of people in uh, the communities where I live who actually believe that God talks to them in dreams right now. Yeah. And so he, uh, the the question is, does it, is, is it consistent with what the Holy Spirit has revealed in other scripture, uh, or is it something that's contrary to those things? And what you see here is that what the angel tells Joseph is that he is a son of David, which as prophecy said, the descendant would come through. And he tells him that he was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, which would be consistent with Isaiah seven, that the the mother would be the one who uh, who would have the child. And he says that he would save his people from their sins. Now, that's an interesting, there are a couple of dimensions for that. Where I was going with that is just that that also is talked about in Isaiah 52 and 53, that this one who was the suffering servant would be the one who would provide liberation from sin. But during that particular historical time that Jesus was born, uh, Jews were looking for salvation from the Romans, not from sin. And so that that in itself really should get the attention of someone back then um, at, during that time. Yeah.
0: Well, and even down to the meaning of th- the name Jesus, which yeah. my understanding is, is something like Yahweh saves or Yahweh is That's powerful correct. to save. So, That's correct. Um, uh, th- 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 even in Jesus's name, this there's this idea of being a a savior. And and the the Messiah was was one who was talked about as a in the language of a savior or a liberator, um, right. but but you're right. I think it was a a very sort of different kind of uh, liberation and freedom that Jews were looking for than than what Jesus would ultimately offer them. Um, right. But uh, uh, but again, going back to that kingly line, he did have the right to claim that throne. <laughs>
1: Right, that's uh,
0: correct. It wasn't. It wasn't for lack of a of a lineage that uh, that he didn't uh, make uh, his kingdom of this of this world, as he would say. That's um, right. So, uh, and then I wanted to point out also in verses uh, 22 and 23 of Matthew 1, you get the first in this pattern that you see over and over again in Matthew, where um, where Matthew will point to the fulfillment of a particular statement in, in either the law or the prophets um, or the Psalms. <clears throat> and, um, and this one comes from Isaiah chapter seven, um, Isaiah chapter seven and verse 14. Uh, so what, 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 do you make of this first reference that we get in Matthew to the old Testament? What is the significance of the name Emmanuel and, and the virgin conceiving and bearing a son? What would have yeah. been the significance of this image to to the, the Jewish mind in the first century that,
1: yeah. Right. Well, it, today, uh, Americans sometimes uh, begin to think that when God says something, it can only have one particular fulfillment. Yeah. Uh, that is not the way that Jews thought, nor the way that they think uh, in in the, the Talmud. Um, uh, that is to say, for the first 600 years after Jesus, uh, they could see how God could say something that had, that was true in more than one way. And Isaiah, the seventh chapter is clearly written about something that was going to happen during the particular he- historical period when Isaiah is writing that. And uh, a maiden during that time did in fact marry and have a child who was a king. And, uh, and so it had a certain fulfillment of it. But not very long after that, and for all of the exile and on in through the rabbis, it became associated with this other king, Emmanuel, God with us. And it is noteworthy that there was not a literal Jewish king named Emmanuel in the time of Isaiah or thereafter. Um, And so this has always been a name that was a figure of speech. That was a name that, like in other names in Isaiah, was meant to uh, give a picture to help us see something about him, and so this uh, this maiden, this virgin, uh, is Mary, and she is indeed a virgin, and she is indeed uh, a maiden, and she does uh, she fills even fuller the prophecy of Isaiah than the prophecy was filled the first time. Yeah. Uh, and Emmanuel, the idea that L, God. Uh, a word associated with power in in the related languages uh, in the Middle East uh, that that God, the power of God, it would be present right with us, and of course, with us has to do with on our side, right? He's on our side, but but that's not all. It has to do with it has to do with being present, and so the Gospel of John says that he tabernacled among us right. in John fourteen. Right. Now he tented here; he was. He was here and now he's been raised from the dead and is at the right hand of God, but through the Holy Spirit, the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit are described as being present with Christians all over the world, all at the same time, as long as we are living in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that this idea that this one is the one that would fill the prophecy of Isaiah 7 even more full than anybody did during the historical period is a very powerful thought and one that would fit and would track with the way that uh, rabbis argued in the Talmud. It would not be an unusual kind of argument uh, for us to, to uh, to find a Jewish rabbi making. So it's interesting from that point of view.
0: Yeah. I think you yeah, had a few things that, there that, that are really important. One, this idea that statements in scripture can have multiple layers of meaning and multiple fulfillments um, is just, that's just an important thing to have in mind when you look at scripture generally, that oftentimes a scripture, especially if you're looking at the prophets, a scripture will have a a more immediate meaning, and that often that meaning is more physical or material, and then it will have a more distant spiritual meaning. Um, and, uh, and you know, in some some points in the prophecies and in Revelation, there's even sort of an even higher spiritual meaning beyond that, where it's about also things that will happen in the last day. Um, Or at least that's the way I look at some of those verses. But at the very least, you got to be comfortable if you're looking at the prophets with, um, sometimes the prophets mean multiple things at once. And sometimes when Jesus speaks, I think he also means multiple things at once in the same way. Um, I want
1: to pick up on what you just said in terms of what we saw in the first part of the first chapter. The first part was establishing the credibility Uh, by these, uh, these, you know, genetic lineage, this genetic lineage, here we have a Holy Spirit lineage. He's going to start laying out these prophecies that connect each generation to Jesus. Because the prophecies were given in other generations, and now they're being fulfilled. And so just like you had the physical DNA lineage generation in the first part, now you're starting to get the spiritual in Romans first chapter. He says that he was a descendant of David, according to the flesh. But then he was uh, that he was a, a son of God, according to the, his, his righteous life. And, and that's a very interesting statement in, in the beginning of the book of Romans. Well, here he's getting into that, that, that Jesus's spiritual lineage is as important as that physical lineage. And to people who are Jews in that time, they would agree with that. And say we want to have a messiah who actually fits what the prophets had said a messiah would look like.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's perfect. That in the generations, um in the generations we're building toward uh toward the fulfillment. And of course, in and Ma- in like in, in Mark one, when Jesus announces his ministry, he says the time is fulfilled. That's the beginning of that statement. Um, which my understanding of that is it means the time is now everything is fulfilled. Now I'm here. Um, And um, uh, so I, yeah, it's just sort of adding a spiritual pedigree of fulfilled prophecies to this uh, this physical geneographical uh, if that's the term uh, uh, lineage that's laid out by, uh, by Matthew. And then Uh, I guess the last thing I was going to hit is is something we kind of have talked about already, but Joseph's sort of immediate action that he takes uh, after the dream, um, even though these are dismaying circumstances, right? He's still got this uh, woman that he's betrothed to who is pregnant, uh, unclear how the spirit has told him that it is uh, that it is from God and that he's, you know, has, has given him a name and that he'll be God with us and all these great things, but, uh, it's a, it's a tiny little bit that God's given him to go off of and he's got to, you know, live his life and raise this, uh, child now and have a, have a a whole family we're, we're going to see. Um, so it it just, I've just always found that part of it. Interesting that, um, that Joseph so immediately jumps into, uh, this new life after receiving this just brief message from God. And so I think it sort, of spe- it sort of speaks to the kind of whole commitment that we are called upon to give in in the Christian walk. But uh, I just wanted to get your last thoughts on that before we close out chapter one.
1: Well, I think that righteousness is um, is an interesting quality. You know, in the in the Book of Genesis, as uh, God's going to destroy Sodom, uh, His angels have this conversation, and God says, "Listen, uh, Abraham and his descendants are going to be." responsible for helping people understand what righteousness looks like. And so I can't hide this, what I'm going to do from Abraham. And so he has a conversation with Abraham to help Abraham understand what righteousness is. And in that conversation he says, you know, I'll I'll put up with a lot of unrighteous people, but if there's 10 righteous souls, I'll save the city. Yeah. So yeah. the righteousness always conveys the Zedek is a is a merciful person in Jewish culture, mm. even to this day. You are not righteous if you are not compassionate. That is a yeah. Jewish principle yeah. that's very important. And so this righteous man says, OK, I, I'm I'm going to live with you as wife. And, and he does. But I'm not going to have any sexual activity with you. That's a right. big right. that's a big thing to give up. Right. You know, I, I, well, she's my wife, but I'm not sleeping with her. But he. Does that. And he could then honestly say, and she could honestly say, no, no, we had no sexual relations until after he was born. Now, other people would slander them and you know, that he was a bastard, that Jesus was was somehow a bastard. And and yet they yeah. could say, for a certain, you know, sometimes right, right. in life we can be noble and we can go beyond what's barely required. And go the extra mile to make sure. And he made sure of her reputation right. in her right. mind and his mind and anybody who would listen to them honestly. Right. And that's, that's something about righteousness. And that's the way God works. And and so that's a powerful thing to me.
0: And the, the importance of the individual conscience, too, that it's like right. people can say what they want about me and people can interpret me any way they, they choose. What matters is can I stand before God? and right. stand by what I've what I've done here. Um and that's I think right. like that's the quality that Joseph gets clearly. Yeah. Uh yes. With, with a little nudge from from the Holy Spirit in a dream, but uh yeah. he seems to have no trouble uh taking to that that level of commitment um once that nudge is given. So
1: yeah. I should add also that in the gospel of Luke where Luke has pulled together all these different sources that included Mary. Hmm. Uh, there's a major point made in the gospel of Luke that Mary was righteous. She was a Zedek. So it's not just that he was, she was.
0: Yeah. Now I I was going to ask generally, like how do you approach the uh, genealogies here in Matthew versus the genealogy in Luke? There are some variations uh, that have been pointed out and people have, you know, crafted several different theories about where the two genealogies come from. And, I find all that kind of not really that interesting really in any kind of like textual criticism issues. I am not that interested in it at this point in my like faith, I guess you'd say just because I've kind of investigated enough of these things to know that they usually get chalked up to um, the texts are old. They have variations. People are making mountains out of molehills. This is normally what's going on when you look at these sorts of things. But I, I do think um, I feel like sometimes, though, I'm under equipped to to deal with these issues when they come up because I find them so kind of uninteresting. Um, right. But so I was wondering if if you had anything interesting to offer about uh, about that subject, particularly as it relates to Matthew and, and Luke and the genealogies.
1: Well, it's an important question for some people um, yeah. because if one sees this as merely a bunch of old writings where people were making it up as they went along. Um, Right. There's a lot in this that tells us that wasn't the case. First of all, the consistency with respect to the connection back to things going on in the Old Testament, the various lists of genealogies there, not only in form, but also in substance. Many of the names are the same. And so that you can actually then go back and say, well, they, they knew what they were talking about and they said different things. And so, and I think that is an important thing to realize: is that you have Luke taking it back through Nathan, the son of David, and you have um, you have Matthew taking it back to Solomon, the son of David, and Matthew uses the kingly line. Now, it's possible that uh, Nathan was another name for Solomon, but it's not very likely since David had another son named Nathan. So, uh, and you know, um, and so what seems to be going on is that there are differences that have to be explained. And so as early as the second century, you had people trying to figure this out. And one uh, very common thing that folks say that I actually think is possible is that Luke is following Mary's genealogy and that Matthew is following a genealogy of the legal father of Jesus, who is Joseph. And that, that's one way that's, that's uh, that sometimes followed. Um, and then it depends on uh, a lot of uh, detail in the weeds conversation about the exact languages in the two uh, certain certain verses in the two accounts. Another way of considering it is that perhaps someone uh, is is a levirate father, that is to say, a brother of the one who's the legal heir and the legal heir dies without children. So his brother marries and has a child that is attributed legally to. Uh, his brother, but in fact, it's the biological child of this other person, and so some folks uh, kind of go on to that. I I, don't, I find that a little hard to believe, since Solomon uh, and Nathan uh, were brothers, but Solomon had lots of kids, so that doesn't seem to be yeah. a problem for Solomon. And and on and on we could go. Uh, there are various uh, ways to uh, to kind of manage this. Um, my my understanding uh, is that it's as you said, you know, you can. Uh, there are uh, all kinds of ways that people have tried to resolve this. And if you have 10 different ways that it could be true, uh, then you have seems uh, like no right noticed. to say yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. You have no right to say it can't be true if you have 10 different ways it can be true. Right.
0: Uh, yeah. Now,
1: you can argue about which one of the 10 ways it's true, but you can't argue that it's not true because there's at least 10 ways it could be true. Yeah. And so you yeah. have multiple ways that this could be true. But it is interesting that Matthew has the kingly lineage because it's talking about what a king he is. Yeah. Whereas in Luke, you do have the connection more to Mary's uh, the things that she treasured in her heart. Uh, and so there is a there's a lot to that. I don't know. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I, I think there's something to the Joseph and Matthew, Mary and Luke theory. I it, I've I, I haven't read a ton about it, but what I have seen online and in commentaries, it seems like. That theory is a little bit um, out of fashion and poo-pooed now by some scholars. But it seems to be the sort of most intuitive, simplest way to resolve this issue. It does have some problems with it, I guess I can see most mostly being uh, coming down to the Solomon versus Nathan issue. All the other variations, I can, you know, I'm willing to just sort of hand wave and say, well, the, the, we're skipping generations anyway in here we i mean we're we're really splitting hairs at this point if we want to make these line up perfectly and the thing with with solomon and nathan is resolvable either in one goes through joseph and one goes through mary um or there's like as you mentioned there's several other ways that you can you can resolve that too so it it, if there are all these possibilities it really seems like kind of a, a moot point um but, you know, but that's how I feel. That's what I feel like all of these textual issues come down to is is like, um, you know, some some professor pointing at some weird passage uh, and being and being like, oh, well, this is really weird. And you standing there having faith being like, yeah, I guess it's kind of weird. <laughs> and just yeah. continuing to both believe what you believe. So this is why these questions are uh, I don't really get too deep into them anymore but um but they are they are important to a lot of people and uh right. especially with everyone being very into um evidence and empiricism and uh, people who like those sorts of things really uh do need to dive into this stuff and and see for themselves that it's that it's true right so. right well do you have any other major burning comments or thoughts on Matthew chapter one. I'm good to close out here if you are, but I want to give you the chance to sort of add anything at the end that you want to throw in there.
1: Just uh, thank you very much for permitting me to be a part of this. I appreciate what you're doing. And Matthew is just a great and powerful book. Um, And it's important to realize that even in the conversations that talk so much about how Jewish much of his writing is, at the final verse, You know, Jesus says, all authority has been given to be in heaven and on earth. Yep. And then he says, go make disciples in all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you, and I will be with you. Yep. And so that the presence of Christ, uh, you know, invisibly, uh, imperceptibly, except aware that through the scriptures that he's with us, uh, is a powerful, powerful reality. Uh, and and so that not only the Jews, but those of us who have been Gentile and have recognized the authority of the Jewish scripture, uh, we look at this book and we go, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. He's yeah. the anointed of yeah. God. He's the one.
0: Emmanuel, the power of the presence of Christ. That's, yes. uh, that's what this means for us. Everything collapses into trusting Jesus more. Take the Christ well, pill. And,
1: and, uh, and and uh, having the righteousness of Christ the righteousness yeah. that he taught us so that the trust always produces a transformation in our lives and so that we love yeah. and that love then becomes the big test and as you saw with Joseph lo- he passed the test of love uh with Mary and uh, so yeah. did Mary
0: yep and yeah. lo- love is always the outgrowth of this but it, it, I, this is, I pointed out to me the other day even love collapses into trusting Jesus more because uh, love yeah, is an outgrowth right. of internalizing Jesus's character. And so that's love right. is always directed in the right directions when we have really taken in what Jesus said and how he loved. That's so right. yeah. All right. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking about the scripture with you, Ed. I'm going to have, uh, I, I told, I I told you and I'll tell everybody here at the end this podcast really is basically an excuse for me to talk to a lot of people who are smarter than me and get their insights on scripture in a setting where I wouldn't otherwise get to do that. And so uh, you were uh, quick to come to mind when I was thinking about people who, uh, who could help me uh, get some, some nuggets of wisdom out of the scripture that I might not get otherwise. So uh, thanks for coming on Ed. I've really appreciated it. We'll see you next time on Christ Pilled Conversations. I'll have another very awesome guest for you. It'll be a lot of fun. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right.